Well, hello there, and thanks for finding us. I'd like to welcome you today to the Recycler Secret Podcast. Regardless if this is your first time or if you've been here since the beginning, it's my pleasure to engage your earballs, not your eyeballs. This podcast is an open and candid interview with an industry professional who specializes in recycling or a subset of materials management. During our time together, I hope to dive deep into the person, their organization, and most importantly, how to duplicate their success, which I broadly call the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome today's guest. Thank you for joining us for the next episode of Recycler Secrets. We're blessed to have Sarah Archer with us today, who is the founder and president of Iris Waste Divergent Specialist here in Saginaw, Michigan. Her firm provides boots on the ground, program management, technical assistance, marketing, and educational services to many different styles of clients across Michigan. Sarah's background starts as an environmental educator at the Charter Township of Ypsilanti, and she went on to manage the waste and recycling operation of University of Michigan, who did win the Michigan-Michigan State game this past weekend, go U of M, before starting her business in 2004. Sarah's involved in a ton of different things across the state of Michigan and is a big uh, portion of the Michigan Recycling Coalition's educational efforts. So we want to welcome Sarah today and uh, take a moment, Sarah, and tell us a, a little bit more uh, about your introduction that we might not have covered and tell us something that we don't know about you. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, my background in recycling goes a long way and I give a lot of credit to my parents who influenced me um, a lot and not realizing that until I got into this industry about being conservative with our resources. But um, I found that aside from recycling, that my interests really go beyond that in the form of um, worm composting. And so something you might not know about me is that I'm an avid worm composter and love to divert food scraps to my voracious worms at my worm farm in Bertrand, Michigan. So we uh, took my worm bins out of my basement in 2014 and started the Five Heart Earthworm Farm out of Bertrand, my husband's family farm and are right now offering collection services to farmers markets and restaurants that want to divert some of their post uh, or pre-consumer um, food scraps. And we've been doing that for a few years now and are actually diverting about 20 tons um, from just a few small businesses um, annually to, um, into vermicompost that's going to help improve our soils and improve the, um, the ultimate nutrition of our food. So that's my what you don't know about me tip today. Well, that's fantastic. You know, we uh, know both of us that, you know, composting is the next evolution in the 3R concept. Um, you know, compost, food, and organics ties in, you know, depending on whose number you use, somewhere between 20 and 40% of the weight in the municipal solid waste stream, and even higher in the commercial streams as you talk about restaurant right. food waste. So. You know, maybe we'll touch back on that here in, in the questions, but let's jump right into things and talk about what it means to be a county resource coordinator on a consultative basis. Can you walk us through the challenges and struggles and rewards in that? Well, when I came on to working with Manistee County, I was coming into a program that was pretty new and was just um, 
set up with half of the townships in the county participating. So my role was really to get out there and recruit additional townships to come on board. So I thought, oh, this will be a piece of cake from what I read. You know, those were the only townships that had any recycling going on. So, hey, everybody loves recycling. Why wouldn't it be easy just to bring the rest of them on board? Well, as I came into this work, I found that the other townships actually had their own independent programs from the county and persuading them to um, come on to a county um, managed program has been um, really difficult because they obviously feel they can do it for less cost and do it um, more efficiently. However, um, trying to help them understand that by working collaboratively towards recycling, we're going to actually get a bigger bang for our buck in the form of um, contract services, in the, um, having a more uniformity across the county so that no matter where you are in the county, recycling is the same. So those are probably my challenges. It's been great, though, working and learning from all of the different townships that I meet with on a regular basis to just kind of understand where they are and what their barriers are to that. And um, at this point, have not, after five years, been successful in bringing another township on board. But we've certainly improved um, the operation of our current and existing program. Okay. So in, in the program that you're talking about, the Manistee program, that is a PA69 program, which is a county-based funding mechanism for those who aren't familiar with what a PA69 program is. And in, in that program, you know, it uh, assesses a tax fee to every resident within that particular community. Is that correct? It's every household. So it's actually in every improved parcel. Um, Public Act 69 in Michigan has a $25 cap. Um, so the Board of Commissioners actually can approve um, the amount that is assessed to improved parcels. The, um, after that, then it would go to voter approval. Um, the, the challenge to that is that there's some hesitation by political figures to put a price that they feel is maybe too high. And so that's where it kind of limits the ability for us to do what I would like to do, you know, the bigger, bigger picture kinds of things with, with that small budget. Because the seven townships of 14 that we have participating, <clears throat> excuse me, are actually the more rural communities. And so the, the actual budget that is generated from that um, assessment is is fairly small. Right. So with a, a $25 uh, contribution per parcel. On an annual basis. On an annual basis. Gives you a really small budget. Mm -hmm. And so with that, it, it really sounds like from, from our past conversations, that's an operational budget. You don't really have a lot of educational yeah. money there. So in the, the dynamic world that we're in today with everything that's going on with recycling markets, how are you going to improve the materials content of those containers? Well, we, we've been working on that since the beginning, and really um, because from the beginning we've had no budget for education, we've tried to find ways to educate as we can. We have monitors at each of our uh, five, six sites now that um, as they are interacting, you know, as they see people using the site, they and if they see something going on that shouldn't be, they talk to them. Our hauler is excellent at spotting folks that are probably not um, recycling properly, and he'll advise them of, of what they should be doing um, to do that properly since he's handling that material. So it takes a different couple different ways, <clears throat> phases of how we do that. We also enlist the townships themselves to help get information out through their newsletters, through their websites, um, if they happen to have a Facebook page to you know help us that way too. Okay. 
So right now there's a, a big trend in trying to realign what used to be traditional roll-off style drop-off sites into containers that are smaller and, and dealt with with a compaction-based truck, a front load or a rear load style truck. So traditionally going from a 30-yard, what they call a recycle hat or a container to a, an 8 or a 10-yard front load or rear load container, you know, Let's talk about the benefits of that. You know, is there benefits that you're seeing in the program going that way versus the other? And I know you've done that transition. Absolutely, because that was one of the very first things that I did coming into this program, knowing that um, the system was already set up with roll-off boxes, and every pull was quite expensive, and it was very time-intensive for our local on-the-ground folks to make sure that every inch of space in that roll-off box was utilized and compacted by hand. You know, they would push things around. Um, so again, it was, you know, very time intensive. Um, and also just, you know, that could one person bringing their materials and could tip that scale and then suddenly you have a very full um, roll-off box. And that was typically emptied on call. So one of the very first things that I did was um, put the contract out for bid to, and asked the, the, um, in the, the contract to, you know, let's look at offering a program that could give us regular service and um, go down to a rear load container that could be dumped on a weekly basis. And then that way we could just um, set up the number of containers that we needed at each site to handle the volumes that we knew were coming in on a, on a, on a regular basis. So we've been um, probably three or four years now um, under that model, and it's been worked very well. It also allows us in, in Manistee, it's a seasonal community, this county, so as the seasonality changes, we're able to just add containers to handle that material in the summertime, um, even to get extra service during the week if needed when they have their local festivals. Um, we're able to service uh, and can accommodate that much, much better. So the townships are much happier with that system in place. So one of the challenges in that mechanism is, you know, when you have to service something outside of the schedule. So if you've got a, uh, a one-time-a-week style collection, as is what you described, but if you've got a site that's heavily used and, and you need to send a special collection out for that, that becomes challenging, Yes. Well, we typically know the volumes that are coming through at each site. We've, you know, we monitor that. That's a benefit of of the system having a recycling coordinator, for sure. Over the, the townships doing that independently, um, you know, we have the monitors. We we look at the data. We know what our volumes are at each site on a regular basis. So we again know what's coming up and when those peak times are. So again, we know when the festivals are going to hit, so we can schedule it in advance. So it's not necessarily a last-minute call, but we can ask our hauler to, you know, hey, this week we need you to pick up on Tuesday and Friday. So they can schedule it in a lot easier than us just saying, oh, my gosh, you know, we're in a lurch. We need you to right now, and they're not having to, to deal with that. So how do you deal with commercial entities wanting to use that? I mean, I know that that's a big program um, or a big issue in a lot of programs where, you know, you can have, uh, you know, an eight-yard container traditionally filled up by a single business if they choose to come in and use that, you know, outside of the normal hours where you have one of your site supervisors. How does that impact your program, and, and what experiences have you had with that? Well, we're very lucky in Manistee County to have Packaging Corporation of America, who has a fundraising trailer that they set up with schools or nonprofit groups. 
um, to receive cardboard. And so the cardboard, we do our best to educate people again to divert those cardboard materials into the PCA trailers. That way it does reduce the volumes that are coming in from businesses into our um, and for that fa for that matter, residential cardboard because there's so much of that now in the in the waste stream. So um, it, that's been a lifesaver for our program because we have such a small budget that we actually have a couple of sites where we've set worked with the schools to set up the trailer right on the same site, or we've set our site up right at the same place as the the school trailers are. So, um, but on the uh, you know flip side of that, we have restaurants that have a lot of you know cans and glass to recycle, and what we've done. Um, is established because we really don't want to tell people they can't recycle, but what we've established was um, a sponsorship program. So if we're able to find the businesses that are using our sites, we um, ask them to consider sponsoring our program. We work with them to try to identify the amount of material that they are bringing to our sites on a regular basis to help them identify what's the best level of sponsorship for them. For the smaller businesses, it starts at $100 a year, and they get recognition at our message boards. Uh, we have some real nice recycled milk jug message boards at our sites, um, so they get recognition in the sites um, that they are a sponsor. They get a nice cling that they can put in their business. So um, we really work to encourage business sponsorship, but we haven't really said, no, you can't recycle in our program. So your tidbit there is for our listeners is developing a sponsorship program to include those excluded people right. and gain a little revenue out of them, right? Right. right. Help fund that program. Right. And I, I you know, because of the um, the way that this program is funded with by the seven townships, and again, because the general public sees recycling as a good thing to do no matter where they're at, we definitely see people from out, you know, surrounding communities using our containers for recycling their materials. So that's also a challenge outside of just the business use is the folks who really aren't funding the program using the program. Um, I had someone ask me today, well, if I don't live in your community, is there a way that I can pay? If my community doesn't have a recycling program, is there a way I can pay something to be able to participate? And so, again, it would be more offering them to sponsor you know, at a $100 level a year to, you know, be able to use that. So, but that's the first time I've been asked that question by a resident. So um, haven't given that much more thought. Okay. So for those listeners who are not familiar with how recycling programs are funded, we talked a little bit about the PA69. What other mechanisms have you come across in your 20 years of doing this? Well, you know, of course, there's always the, just the millage, you know, the solid waste millage or recycling millage that um, helps, you know, to fund specific programs um, related to this. Um, some counties that have landfills in place will have a surcharge to that landfill to help fund programs as well. Um, that's not the case in Manistee County. Um, what I'm finding though more common is that at the local township level, municipal level, as well as at the county level, a lot of them are just um, paying for that program out of their general fund budget, uh, which is getting harder and harder to do but, um, you know, for those that are committed to it, they, you know, they feel like that's just part of what needs to happen, and so they make it work. So while we're talking about recycling, you know, take a minute and tell me which way you weigh in on this. Single stream, dual stream, mm -hmm. what's better? 
You're an old soul, I'm so an I, old I think you're going to go to dual, aren't you? Yeah, that's, I had a hard time buying into the single stream, uh, mainly, I'm an old soul, but mainly because I had concerns initially about quality of product and quality of material going to market. Um, I understood the need to increase participation at the time, but now, in retrospect, in hindsight, you know, I'm like, yes, I think my first hunch about staying dual stream was the right way to go. And um, it, as I look at, you know, working with some of our clients in the state who don't have programs, I think my recommendation to them would be if they're just starting new, starting out fresh, is because I think it would be hard to convert a community from single stream back to dual stream. I think that's the recommendation I would make to them is to go dual stream. So the proponents of single stream basically blame a lot of this on bad actors in the industry. So there are people who collect single stream that run it through non-automated systems or primarily non-automated systems. And, and you know, what they say is in order to process single stream correctly, you need to have a fiber screen and you need to have optical sorting. And if you don't have those two pieces of tools, those two tools, you're not going to be a viable player. What do you say to that? Well, I think it really starts with quality up front. Um, you can have all the equipment mechanization that you could possibly afford to have, but if you're just getting in poor quality materials to begin with and lots of contaminants, you know, you're spending time manually up front before it even hits that very expensive equipment trying to get it out of there to begin with. So again, for me, and maybe it's just because of the type of work we do, it's really about education and it's really about you know, setting the standards, setting the norms. And even as I look at myself as a parent, it's like, and holding people accountable to do it right. You know, Why are we picking up people's curbside carts or bins when they're full of stuff we don't want in there? Um, you know, it's important that we hit it right at the source, at the curb, and, and let them know that, you know, we don't accept these materials. And what I find is that people, when you educate them about this doesn't belong there, they're pretty apologetic. You know, they don't understand the system. The more we can teach them about um, what, how the system really works, where this material goes, how it's actually handled, what happens to it once it leaves that facility, then they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry I made more work for somebody, you know, and, and are willing to change their behavior to to clean up their act literally right so you know at the front at the curb is is exactly right where it needs to happen do you think that we as a society have positioned people to believe that everything's recyclable and that's why we have so much contamination I think it's a combination of things I think we've made it made them think that everything's recyclable because we've confused them with the recycling symbol and the use of the recycling symbol since so there's so much prevalence of plastic in our lives these days that I think people see that symbol and they just automatically believe that it's can be recycled at their curb or in their you know drop-off station so I think it's partly that um, I do believe that because again, maybe misinformation or miscommunication about when we went from dual stream to single stream that it's all in one or, you know, whatever the terms were used that people, again, was like, oh, well, somebody's going to sort this all out anyway. So because I used to sort out the paper from the glass, from the plastic, from the cardboard, I don't have to do that anymore. So someone else is going to do that for me. So I think that message also made people believe that oh, well, if it doesn't really belong in there, somebody's going to take it out. So I don't have to be as concerned about it as I used to be. 
Well, the, the single stream definitely has its challenges, and, and the larger bin is always going to be one mm -hmm. of those challenges because uh, when you're using an automated sideload truck to, to pick up an automated right. collection bin, you're going six foot up in the air, and mm -hmm. you're only going to see that on a camera. So right. that, you know, it's hard to identify if you don't have those people on the street, on the ground, right. going ahead of a collection vehicle and providing that education. So... Right, which I think should be done every so often. You know, again, that's part of, of running and, and operating a good program is you've got to spot check every so often, and you've really got to talk to your drivers. They know what they're picking. I mean, they may not know every single thing, but they know which households are causing problems and are repeat offenders and, you know, tracking that and trying to, again, reach out to those communities to uh, or those people to, to, you know, do it right or remove their recycling card. It's like, you know got to play the tough guys sometimes and just say, well, you're not using this recycling card for what it's intended, so we've given you three warnings and tried to give you some education, so I guess you're not really that interested in recycling, and sorry, here it goes away. So <laughs> maybe not what everybody would do, but you know, if I ruled the world, that's how it would be. If Sarah rules the world, <laughs> pull in your recycle bins when that's you're not right. behaving yourself. So when we talk about education, let's talk about the money of it a little bit. So there's lots of different figures out there depending on who you ask, but we're asking you today. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about what's the cost of education per home in a community, what's that look like? Is that a dollar? Is that $3? If you were to design a program from scratch, which you've done for communities in the past and make a recommendation on funding for education, what is that? Well, I know that, you know, the recycling partnership talks about a dollar, dollar and a half per household. Um, that's, uh, I think, a pretty fair um, average. But again, I think it depends on the complexity of the program that you have. Um, if you're just starting out, you're going to definitely need more dollars in your budget to kick a program off, to launch a program, than to do just maintenance. But again, if you're a, a, a solid program with, with some really good goals to divert materials, you're going to really always be launching new programs. And so I would go on the heftier side of budgeting for education um, because you can never over-educate people. And there there's so many new ways to reach out. And, and again, even if it's this, okay, part of our education now is we're going to have a door-to-door -door campaign or we're going to go and check bins at the curb to improve as much as we can. I, I think you could spend every dollar that you get. So... Um, you know, I, it's hard to sell the $3 or more in education. So it's always easier to say, well, you know, the standard is $1.50, you know. But that $1.50, it, it doesn't really bring you far enough. I mean, to mm, do a no. direct mail campaign, right. you're exactly. 90 cents. Right. So if you're only generating a dollar, right. that doesn't pay for the graphics time no. or the administrative time behind mm -hmm. that direct mail piece. So at a, at a dollar, you really can't even send a piece of mail to every home in your community mm -hmm. per year. Right. So three dollars is that is that where you're at in more realistic terms, or would you say five? I would probably go five. Okay. And so for five dollars a home, what kind of things could you accomplish? Oh my gosh. Again, the technology is so um, so out there right now, and with the use of you know smart technology, you really have to have a digital presence out there, um, especially with our millennials, you know that are so prevalent in our society now, and to be able to reach them, um, having a up-to-date website. Um, being able to have um, some of these new apps to have these directories where they can search what do I do with my materials, um, you know, 
different social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, being able to have someone dedicated, a person, because that's really what it's going to take, is having a staff person dedicated to managing all of that technology and that communication um, in itself, you know, is important um, if you really want to be able to continue to message out there. And then, you know, just the advertising that could be done, the branding of your campaign, you know, billboards, radio, you know, given... Um, the dollars, there are certainly plenty of things. And then just to, even the public education um, to get out to events, which is something we're not able to do in Manistee. We just don't have the resources or budget to hand anything out or to, you know, other than to show recyclables on a table. <laughs> That's pretty much what we get. So, Is um, traditional media dead as it relates to education, in your opinion? When, when I say traditional media, I'm talking about print and... Mm -hmm. You know, direct mailing and yeah. newspaper kind of traditional I, I don't media. think so. I, I think that there are still, um, there's still a population that really relies on that print media. Um, I can tell you every single event that I've ever gone to that we've helped to manage, there's people with whatever it was we put in a newspaper or sent in a tax bill sitting right there next to them in the car. So um, it's a physical reminder of the event or the information, and that's what we want it to be. And so, you know, I definitely think there's a place for that. Maybe not, um, you know, as drilled down as we used to do that, but it certainly has a place. All right, Sarah, there's a ton of resources out there in terms of information, grants, collaborative partnerships. Who and what are the ones that are most important to an organization like yours and the communities that you represent and why? I know that's a loaded question yeah. because it's state dependent, but right. you know, there's some national grants or state grants. Um, yeah. There's local foundational grants. Right. Um, and we've applied for all of those for on behalf of our clients and have not had a very good success rate. Um, most of those are very limited in funding, and so they're very competitive. Um, and because they're competitive and they don't have a lot of funding, they try to spread it out pretty thin for the most part. But I would say that definitely... I was very pleased to see that the state was able to provide some grant funding and opportunities for funding in the last few years. Um, again, even though we weren't granted an award for the recycling program here in Manistee, it at least laid the groundwork for me to apply um, along with the uh, uh, economic development group here for USDA um, economic development grant, which we did get. And so that... Um, grant itself was able to help us move the needle just a little bit more on recycling in this region and uh, definitely um, have just wrapped that grant up. So it's, uh, you know, that's a, a good resource to have. I think being in a rural county, we have a lot more resources than I was aware of before working with different other um, organizations. So it's nice to know that the USDA Rural Development Grants are out there. We also applied for a solid waste grant for this county and again did not get awarded that grant but that would have really helped us out if we could have gotten that one that one was a big ask um that would have really helped us with education really would have helped us to accelerate this program a little more so when it comes to those national grants the competition is fierce yes and a lot of times we see the big metro cities get those right and so what you're saying or what I'm hearing you tell us is that the more regional or localized foundational grants are sometimes more attainable. 
um, the foundation grants sometimes can be restricted to certain use. And so, again, it really um, varies from you know, county to county or community foundation to community foundation. And so you really, um, it's, a, you know, important to contact those community foundations locally to see what they have as far as unrestricted funds and the amounts for that and how those can be used. But um, again, they're, the unrestricted funds are usually smaller amounts. And so you're able to do small things, but not too much to really, you know, make a big dent. So they're oftentimes good for, you know, I need some new signs or, you know, something like that. So because you have a, a very heavy consultative side of your business, if a community came to you and wanted you to help them apply for a grant, mm -hmm. what does that cost structure look like? And, and I'm not going to hold you to that number, but is that a, a $5,000 expense from your organization? Is that a $500 expense from your um, organization? It really depends on the grant itself. So again, a, a smaller community foundation grant, you know, might yeah, be a thousand bucks, you know, for a smaller community foundation grant, 500 is a thousand. Um, but the larger grants, these uh, federal grants are quite um, time consuming. And so again, it would just really depend on the size of the grant itself. One of the relationships that IRIS has is it's involved with the education as, uh, as a direct arm for a materials recovery facility over on the east side of the state. Can you tell us about your duties and relationships and the value that you bring to that organization? Sure. Um, so that, again, completely reflects the nature of that um, organization's commitment to recycling education um, in hiring us to provide um, educational tours and um, presentations into the community that they serve. Um, so you know, they understand when you get someone in the door to actually look at the material recovery facility in real life and see that, oh, this is really highly mechanized. It is a production process. You know, and again, this is where they're like going, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. I mean, we really hear people saying that I'm so sorry. I'm screwing up the system. So, um, so it is, it's really important um, that they do that. But our duties pretty much are, we are the main point of contact for those um, those educational opportunities, they contact us, we do the scheduling, um, we meet the groups at the facility, um, we provide materials for them to um, learn from if they're having to you know, go into different groups because of the size through the facility. Um, and then we also um, do surveys after the, the um, event to make sure that everything was satisfactory and report that back to our clients. So, that MRF's a part of a solid waste authority, and I know that as part of that, they cycle through several different school districts through that facility every year, and I, and I don't remember the grade, but I think it's either five or six that they cycle through. I think, yeah, well, it was um, fifth grade, and I think it changed to sixth grade because just because of the schools that changed, but it's one, it's one school district, and they received a grant, okay. um, a, a foundation grant to educate those students um, through uh, in, in recycling. So that's, okay. that's what funded that. So I know both you and I have been involved in a lot of public education over the year, developing green teams for schools and, and helping them, you know, launch internal school recycling programs. Take a few moments and tell the listeners what you believe 
the three to five keys are to developing a great school recycling program? Well, number one, you've got to get the um, operational staff on board. So um, some of my most successful programs have been where I've um, had the maintenance facility supervisor, manager, you know, on board from day one, meeting actually with his staff before we even went to the superintendent, uh, and helping them to understand the importance of this because their first instinct is that it's going to be more work for me. Um, and when we, you know, the, my, my method of inst instituting school recycling programs is really to have it be um, everyone is involved. There's all the stakeholders are involved. So it's not just that we're setting up a recycling bin in a classroom and it's the custodian's job to deal with it, but rather that it's a student program that they're helping um, implement and maintain and it's really um, in partnership with the custodial staff that that's all occurring so number one I think it's great to have that buy-in um, having of course the support of the supervisor or the um, school administration and the board and then making it the kids program I mean help them to understand what they're doing help them to monitor it help them to measure it um, help them to understand where the materials are going um, and to peer each other, be, you know, the peer supervisors, monitors when a, another fellow student isn't participating properly to, to do that. Um, schools that have had their um, older grades kind of be the leaders on that and helping to teach the younger students has been very successful. And um, it's always great fun when they actually put together like a little play or skit to introduce the program because then it's memorable for the, for the students to, to participate. How important are the containers? Uh, I have found the containers aren't as critical as we in the industry think they need to be um, because for the students, it could just be a cardboard box that they themselves have decorated to get their ownership and buy-in. You know, again, it may mean that a couple months down the road they're going to need to create a new box, but, you know, that's, they know that that's what it's for. As long as they know the purpose of that box and what goes into it, um, it's not as critical that they actually have a plastic bin with a recycling symbol on it. They can make that happen. I know that uh, you know when I go through K through six public education, I always start with the reduce. It's it's amazing how many schools you go into and, and a student will come up and go, "We want to recycle," and you go, "What?" And they go, "What do you mean?" You go, "Well, what do you want to recycle?" And they go, "Straws." And you go, wow, you can't recycle straws, but you can reduce them by going to a paper straw. What else do you want to recycle? And they start going through this list, and so you start dealing with the reduced side of it first. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me at the K through 6 level how that pre-thought has never been there. Right, and that goes back again just to education and how it just shows how little it's even incorporated into our curriculum when the three R's, which are the hierarchy is reduce first, reuse, then recycle, is not even being taught in our schools, but secondly, that our own teachers aren't aware that that's you know, the hierarchy of, of our behavior with regard to our discards. So yeah, so it's, that's really great that yeah. you're helping bring that to their attention. So Sarah, you know, politics are a huge part of being able to advance recycling at a county, city, or township level. What strategies and tactics does IRIS utilize in navigating these difficult waters? Well, I think it's really important um, for us because of the type of work that we do. We're typically not local to our communities that we're helping 
to really take the time to get to know the community, get to know the leaders in the community, to be present at meetings, to um, understand the, you know, the culture of every community and, and, you know, gain that acceptance from them to even be able to begin to start to influence any of the decisions that they may be making in this arena. So, you know, that's, I think, really a key factor in us being able to work with with these communities. Um, but secondly, I think it's really important that pol- the politics sometimes have false, you know, what do I want to say, perceptions of how the public is going to react to certain actions that they may take related to recycling. And I think it's important, but again, this takes money um, to poll or survey the residents to actually get a true sense of where they stand and where they are willing to put their dollars um, in support of recycling. Because my gut feeling is that if we were to go out today and do a survey or poll people at, and and not at the recycling sites, because that's obviously the folks that are already doing that. But even those folks, you know, when you, when I tell them you're only paying X number of dollars, you know, per year for this program, they're like, a year? Are you kidding? That's nothing. I'd be willing to pay more. That, I don't think that, that that comment is getting to our officials who are making those decisions, who are afraid to say, oh, well, we're going to increase an assessment, you know, from, 16 to 20 dollars we're going to get lynched if we do that I you know I I think that's um, a false perception on their part many times do you think that ties into what I call the vocal minority and when I say that what I I define that as for those people who who want a little definition behind that is you have those 10 or 15 naysayers that come out to a lot of political functions and those are the minority Mm -hmm. of people you know, the vast majority of your folks sit at home and they're happy with what's going on in local government and they don't, you know, come out and vocalize their opinions. So that that dissension or that negativity is coming from a, a small group. Would you agree to that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where I think it's really important to get in front of, you know, the supporters that you have. And um, again, finding those organizations, those gro- local groups and those local um, folks that are in support of it so that when you need to have a positive voice, you know, rise up over those people that are, you know, contentious that you can call them to, you know, to be by your side as you're making your case for, you know, maintaining a recycling program. So make sure you're positioning positive people in front Absolutely. of council. Yeah. So we're getting towards the end of our time, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. The world's recycling markets have began to crash in certain sides of the United States. And here for the first time, you know, we've started to have candid conversations, not only with our government leaders around the world, but also with our residents as it relates to true costs. While you and I both know there's no silver bullet fixes, I'd like to know what steps you think are going to get us back into the right place. Well, again, I think we really need to have an injection of education um, and an understanding that we are all a part of this process, that it's not set it out to the curb or put it in the recycling container at the drop-off and I'm done, that it really is understanding all of the different 
players and all of the different processes that occur in order to um, get this material to market. I think it's also important that um, our state government starts focusing a, um, a lot more on the development side of markets um, for these materials that we are, you know, we want people to recycle more, but we want, and we want it to be quality material, so where's that material going to go um, once we start getting everyone to participate and part participate properly? So I would love to see um, our economy ignited by the recycling industry um, and, and through the development of new markets. So I think a good focus on that as well would really, you know, have those local domestic markets for materials is going to help um, bring us back and, and you know, level, up, level it out a little bit so we're not diving, <laughs> diving so drastically um, into the, you know, pits of hell, if I can say that on your oh, show. Absolutely. <laughs> so education and, and domestic market growth, I mean, are the two keys you know, manufacturing has a big part of this, though. I mean, if you look at historically the last 10 years, you know, water bottles to equate to a ton of material, it, it used to take 40,000 water bottles, and now it takes approximately 90,000 water bottles. So that light weighting, that evolving ton, has changed the way the industry gains value. Mm -hmm. And so it's good that we're using less resources right. in this packaging, but at the same time, it's, it's changing our worlds. And, you know, also it's creating products that are harder and harder to recycle. And, you know, I like to give the example of the Tide Pods. You went from a, a very high-value HDPE Tide bottle to a almost no-value PET orange-colored flake in what was in the Tide Pods, and then they transitioned to flexible packaging, right. which is almost non-recyclable in almost all markets. Mm -hmm. So, you know, manufacturing's making a shift, and so it's, it's on a, one side, it's really good that we're losing less, you know, material in the footprint, but on the back side is we're creating a product that has no end life. Right, and, I, and again, it does come back to the manufacturers to look at the design side of their, their packaging and their products to, you know, take a, a, a true hard look at what is going to happen with this material once it's done. And I, I you know, the Product, Stewards, Product Stewardship Institute, you know, is, is helping manufacturers to try to understand the, you know, end of life use or non-use of their product and trying to help them to be better stewards of their own products. And, you know, I would like to see more of that happening. I'd like to see more of our companies um, taking back their the products that they have created. EPR, folks, yes. extended producer yes. responsibility. Yes, absolutely. So that um, you know, it 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 again, it, it's again as I said before, it's part of that us being all part of this whole process so of knowing what our waste stream is and where it's going. So whether it's going into a recycling system or whether it's going into a landfill or where, whether it's going to waste to energy, we need to understand and know, you know, and be responsible to that product and making sure that it gets to where it's going to have its best use. You know, as a consumer myself, I always think about what's going to happen to this when I'm done with it what's going to happen to this? So do I really want this particular product in this particular packaging if I don't have a place for it to go 
other, where I know it's going to be given another cycle of life through a recycler or through energy or, or what have you. So it's, um, I think, again, we're all a part of that, and we all have to be responsible for our own waste and our the products we create and the material that we generate, um, you know, all the way down the line. So last question, and it's a doozy. Uh-oh. You've been hired by the state's recycling coalition to provide an introduction to materials management for what the last ten years, mm, roughly. Gosh, has it been that long? Possibly. Each year, you get ten to thirty new industry professionals that come and participate in that multiple day course. What's the three most important takeaways that our listeners can gain from that course? Well, I. Th- I believe that, again, and I'm thinking about this from even our surveys, that um, as always, people, when they gather together in the same room, in the same place for a few days or many hours together, the, the networking, the, the um, reinforcement that they aren't the only one going through the situations that they're going through, especially if it means that they are you know, having some struggles and challenges that they can talk to someone else that's going through the same thing. So I think, you know, on a, at that level, they're coming away with that. Um, from the learning side of things, um, that particular program helps folks to understand the importance of knowing from the get-go and from the very beginning what materials you're actually having to deal with. So we do a waste assessment um, and help them to understand the importance of you know, just getting a handle on what materials are we generating and which of these materials is really um, viable in our community to manage a different way than just going into a landfill. So I think those uh, those two things. And then um, finally, we actually talk about implementation and behavior, um, I don't want to say change, behavior management as to how to improve people's participation in a, in a program once you get it going. So for those folks that come that are brand new and are looking to start a program, they're getting a lot of great um, information on how to get something going from starting a green team to, you know, um, choosing containers. But for those that are already have programs and are working and struggling with proper participation in a program, we're helping them to understand some of the resources out there to do that and get um, how to overcome some of those people that are, again, wanting to either sabotage or just don't want to, you know, think about it twice and how, how do you manage that. So. so, Sarah, what you really said there was peer-to-peer networks core material understanding and implementing and behavioralist behavioral management mm-hmm. right that's, and we I mean, take and we give them a murph tour too so that's really awesome and you get your eyes on it yes, right get it right. get them into places that they might not have seen so sarah i want to you know thank you on behalf of recycler secret for spending the last 45 minutes with us and you know kind of talking through your world before we part ways you know tell the folks at home how to get in touch with you oh sure and what's the best ways to find you on the socials Okay, so you can email me at Sarah, that's S-A-R-A-H, Sarah with an H, at iriswastediversion.com. You can also call me if you'd like, 734-476-2186, or you can find us on Facebook um, at iriswds. That's the biblical Sarah, Sarah with an H. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the episode. Thank you very much for joining us today on Recycler Secrets Podcast. Stay tuned. Send us your friends. Give us your likes. We appreciate you being here. Have a great day.